From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week, cats continue to jump out of bags. John Authors and Mark Granfield on the FOMC meeting that may have invited back the central bank put. Later, how does the empire strike back? Over the years, about 30% of Adani's financing is denominated in foreign currencies. They have borrowed extensively on the dollar bond market. They have also sought funding from foreign banks in their overseas expansion. Shuli Ren on the outlook for Gautam Adani's Adani Enterprises, the conglomerate responsible for so much of India's infrastructure, central to its industrial growth, rocked by a short seller's report. First, though, to the FOMC and Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. So, John, as Michael Frohley of J.P. Morgan put it, Powell doesn't fight the market. That's the old saw turned on its head. But that's exactly what happened. Where was Powell's hawk costume? You said he needed to put it on and snarl, but he yes. didn't. Uh, he needed to put on his hawk costume. I think he probably tried to, to some extent, but he didn't do a good enough job. Where? I didn't hear very much of anything hawkish. Oh, I, I, I think he started out by making clear that they did expect to hike rates further. He made rather rote-like comments that the Fed's job wasn't done. He said in as many words that we low from history that the risks from loosening too soon are very serious and it's not clear what you do about it if you make that mistake, whereas we know what we can do if we over-tighten. We have tools to deal with that. So it's fairly clear to me that he meant to be hawkish, hmm. that he was trying to do the kind of thing, like you rightly said, I was suggesting in a, in a column he would need to do, which was sound really, really aggressive. He did, I think, make one awful mistake... And I don't know whether this was a simple flub or whether it's a Freudian slip to reveal his whole thinking. But when he was asked if he was bothered about financial conditions having eased since the last he FOMC, said tightened, yeah, uh, which is wrong. Yeah, exactly. And so wrong that I suspect it wouldn't amaze me if he just admitted I misheard that question mm. and because what he absolutely had to say in that situation was yes. I'm worried that financial conditions have eased. They cannot carry on like this, or otherwise we'll have to keep hiking more. It was a straightforward requirement of him from the text, and it just isn't true. The, the financial conditions, whether you use our Bloomberg measure or the Goldman Sachs measure, which are the two most popular, but Everything on any sensible needs. measure, they're somewhat tighter than they were in December, and a lot sorry, tighter. I just did the same you thing. Did it, yeah. That wasn't a Freudian slip. No. That, I suspect, might have been what Powell did. And they're considerably looser than they were in August before inflation began to come down. Maybe he was afraid to talk about the market. Uh, again, this is the dangerous area where 
Yeah. Um, it's almost like we're getting into Freudian psychoanalysis of this one man's personality. Or it's almost like a textual analysis, mm. hypertextual. But it's always been criticism. like that with the Fed. It's it's it has. There was one time when they changed one word in their communique from one mm. meeting to the next, and I still had to write an eight hundred word column about it. And so. there was probably eight hundred <laughs> words to write. That's the funny yes. thing about the Federal Reserve. Yes. yes, but I think in this case, perhaps the bottom line, and this may be the line that holds up, is that he did say that the Fed would be data dependent in future mm. and if you're being data dependent you cannot therefore be absolutely committing yourself to tightening and tightening and tightening there again. is another potential mm. is there something the fed is seeing about the economy that markets may be seeing but that we're not the, is, is it possible that fed chair powell is actually worried about a deeper recession it's possible I, it, it, it's possible, it's also possible, frankly, that he's worried about overheating. Mm. That we have not a soft landing, but no landing. We keep flying, which would be wonderful on many levels, except that it would mean inflation still yeah. hadn't been vanquished and he would need to keep rates higher. And that's something we should pretty much all hope happens, except those of us who have invested in assets <laughs> that require low interest rates. That's true. And for those of us, that, yeah, for the, that that includes you know a huge chunk of our clients, readers, and viewers, obviously. But that is a concern that does worry me. If you look at again, this was perhaps unwise of him. Either this was unwise, or it was his revealing his hand too clearly. He did make the point that inflation expectations have notably come under control; that they haven't become unanchored. Unanchored, yeah. If anything, they have been re-anchored. Which is true. The Fed's own, New York Fed's own survey very clearly shows that. And he then made the point what we don't want to do is cut too soon and then see expectations come unmoored again. Unmoored, yeah. But you could look at that more as some kind of a Freudian slip or a tell that he does actually think he's winning and that he can turn, turn around quite soon. There was something else that jumped out at me. He teased the minutes, which was the strangest thing. He wouldn't talk about whether the committee had talked about pausing, what that would look like, how much they had talked about it. But he did say that there'll be more detail in the minutes, which come out in three weeks. Why wouldn't he go into detail? Uh, that's, that was an interesting one. He, the last time that happened, from memory, was last year on the subject of how they were going to do QT. Hmm. And he said it was very similar to that, that, um, well, we did discuss QT and you'll be finding out more about that in the minutes. Yeah. Um, and that was generally regarded as quite a successful piece of signaling and communication. They didn't want to hit people with everything all at once. Mm. I guess that's why. I guess if you want a, a logical explanation, maybe it is that, in fact, they are feeling more dovish than he wanted to let on to today. Let on today. Mm. But it's also possible that they're actually more hawkish than he wanted to let on today. For it's, some oh, it, honestly, it was it was quite a strange news conference. Yes, Talk to us it about, was. it. wasn't it the yield curve? We saw the 10-year yield come down from above 350 or around 350 to below 340. Yeah. That was quite the move. It was a bit. I mean, that was more easing right there. Yeah, and well, and, and the two-year. And the well. two-year, yeah, the, in the, particular. The, um, Yes, I mean cats continue to jump out of bags. Um, if you, uh, uh, or if you, if you want another version, you did see a significant weakening for the dollar. So the euro 
briefly got above $1.10 mm. for the first time since I think April of last year. And you know, obviously there's a very big deal with the ECB coming up to see whether that gets confirmed. That does ease conditions a little. You can see that as some kind of counteract because it does make it easier for people to sell stuff abroad. Exactly. It does also, however, hype up inflation a bit more. Mm. Makes imports more expensive. Which is another reason why you wonder why he said that, why he did what he did. JP Morgan, just to return, sees one more 25 basis point hike, as do a lot of people, and then a hold. But JP Morgan sees a hold for a year. As you see conditions right now, would it take a year of holding to get rates, inflation and the economy into balance? That's frankly been the scenario I have been expecting. A year of holding? If you remember back when Ben Bernanke stopped his hiking campaign that had gone on for years, started by Greenspan in 86, they kept the rate at, I think it was five and a quarter, five and a half percent, which is actually not at all dissimilar to where we Not too far away, yeah. They kept rates there for over a year. Again, and then everything fell apart because of the financial crisis. Mm. But that was one precedent. There's certainly no sign of the kind of ridiculous speculative activity going on in the economy now that there was then, and so less apparently risk of a really major accident resulting. So I don't think that's outlandish. I do think myself. And this is where I agree with Jay Powell. It's just if I'm reading what he wants to do correctly, he should have said this louder and emphasised it more. You do need to leave rates up there for a while. Otherwise, you get into these logical self-contradictions that you know that inflation will come down if rates stay high for a while. So why don't you preempt the rates coming down with the result that inflation won't come down either? Mm. I, I therefore, this I have more confidence about than the other things, unless there is a very much worse tumble into all-out recession than currently seems likely, because, of course, the whole idea of a soft landing taking hold is because a lot of the data has suggested things are better than that. That's been fine, yeah. Then why would you reduce rates? They're historically not Hmm. that high at all. They're still only just above inflation. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, 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 If something goes wrong, then they bring them down. Yeah. As happened, of course, with Ben Bernanke in dramatic style in 2007. But absent that, in which case you probably don't want to be holding stocks right now. Yeah. Absent that, I think you expect to. Um, I can remember. I think I, one of my favourite economists predicted that the Fed funds rate was going to grow roots at five and a quarter percent under Bernanke, and it did. And it wasn't that difficult to spot. There was just unless you have a clear reason to cut, you don't want to. And that's where I still think the market is wrong. But we will live and learn. Bloomberg Opinions, John Author is there. We get more perspective on the central bank triple whammy this week in a moment from Mark Cranfield, MLive global strategist out of Singapore. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. We get more perspective now on this week's central bank triple whammy. Here's Mark Cranfield, MLive global macro strategist out of Singapore. Mark, Garfield Reynolds, our chief Asia rates correspondent, talked about the fact that there actually might be a central bank put in the market again, that that might have been invited back this week. Do you agree with that interpretation? Uh, it's probably a bit strong, but certainly people are getting more confident that the, the major central banks, um, the Fed, European Central Bank and the, the Bank of England, uh, they get they themselves seem to believe that the inflation cycle is turning for the better, and that is to say that inflation is falling. And they seem to be having a stronger conviction that that's the case. And obviously traders are taking heart from that. The, the one outlier could be the Bank of Japan. A lot will depend on who is chosen as the next Bank of Japan chief, and we'll probably know that within the next couple of weeks. But certainly, as far as the, the Europeans and the Americans are concerned, uh, the, the central banks are, are acting much more favorably towards risk assets than they were just a few months ago. And it was quite a surprise, particularly from the Federal Reserve, right? Because we were anticipating that Powell would have to come out and at least school the market a little bit, if not outright slap the market back. And he didn't. He actually said, you know, we're seeing some progress. And the market took it that way and rallied. I mean, some of the indices rallied at least. For once, it seemed like the market actually took him at his word. Yeah, I think he may regret using the word disinflation. Mm. I think that might be a bit premature. And that certainly sparked a lot of activity in markets, particularly in the equity market. Uh, he, Considering that the inflation numbers are still running at something like 7% in the United States. And it's been a gradual process of unwinding that. Uh, and it's still the major issue for him to address. And he has also said that there's more rate hikes to come. So he may be getting a little bit ahead of himself there, and he may have chosen better wording than that. And for the time being, it's got the market very excited. Of course, we've got lots of data coming up between now and the next Fed meeting. So it's not going to be one-way traffic by any means. There's going to be some bumps along the road. Uh, And we're going to hear more from other Fed speakers as well. There could be some pushback. Some of the more hawkish members of the Federal Reserve may want to push against that a little bit. They don't want markets getting overconfident before the Fed has really finished their job of getting rates to where they want them to. Well, interestingly, we had a couple of high-profile people signal this in advance. So we had Paul Krugman saying you don't want to give any room for inflation to come roaring back. We had Mohamed El-Aryan at some point also talking about how this is a time where the Fed has to be very, very, very careful. It really didn't seem like Powell was being that careful the other day. I think that, that probably tells you more about who traders listen to than anything else. I think with all due respect to those kind of pundits, I think traders have learned, especially during the process of the past couple of years in trying to tame inflation, as far as the Fed is concerned, there's only really one man that counts, that's Jerome Powell. Mm. And you have to listen to what he says and look at what he does. And equally in other central banks as well, I think people have realized that you have to take the head of the central bank and the senior people, take them much more seriously and give a lot more weight to what they have to say than any outside voices you may come across. The 10-year yield dropped to below 340 from above 350, and we saw some other moves across the curve as well. Is there any chance that the Fed is a little concerned about recession and that that's why we're seeing lower rates? That's traders. That's not the Fed. The inverted yield curve that you see is traders hedging, and it's not a particularly expensive way of doing it. So if you think that the the Fed is not going to be able to achieve a soft landing, if it's going to be more like a hard landing, 
for traders to take a defensive position through the yield curve is not too bad, particularly through derivative space. You can do that without a huge cost, especially if you're hedging it, say, by being long equities or short the U.S. dollar as well. So if you do it on a portfolio approach, it's not too bad. So really what that's telling you is there's a number of people who've got portfolio bets as a kind of insurance in case the Fed has made a mistake. I think we'll see that to get gradually get unwound because I think one thing you can rely on is that when the Fed tell you they want to hold short-term interest rates high for a long period, that is probably exactly what they mean. So even if whether they stop rates at 5% or 5.5%, once they get there, they don't plan to drop rates. I think that is the part which is probably the market has probably got wrong, is that there's going to be a rate cut this year. That's extremely unlikely. That process will slowly come out of the market. It's not going to come out all in a rush because we've got a few Fed meetings to come and gradually people will realise they can take the Fed at their word. They're going to hold rates. From where you stand right now, how long would the Fed have to hold rates for? Is it possible to even prognosticate? I think they, they intend to do it for the rest of this year at least. That is their aim. But we've seen in the past, if you look at previous cycles, particularly, say, for example, after the internet bubble burst in the early 2000s, the Fed took quite a while before they changed their held rates for a long time. Then they finally moved about a year after the bubble burst. But when they did start to move, they cut rates quite quickly, and it was a series of, of rate cuts. So that probably means that if the economy underperforms, if we do get the kind of hard slowdown, which is possible, or we get a, a slowdown which the Fed thinks is too extreme, then maybe in the first quarter of next year, you'll start to see the rates coming down. And when they do, there'll probably be a succession of rate cuts after that. Mark, did you find it odd that when Powell was asked about the discussion around the pause, that he wouldn't go into detail, but that he teased the minutes? He said the minutes coming out in three weeks will tell you a lot more. Why make traders and investors wait for the minutes to hear more about the pause? Why not talk about it this week? Um, He probably wants to make sure that he, he doesn't give any wrong impression that people can suddenly jump upon. There is probably a consensus that's probably formed within the Federal Reserve, and he probably wants to make sure that everybody's on the same page exactly what that consensus is. He doesn't want to front-run any opinions on that, and he doesn't. He knows that when he, when he speaks in public, there's always the risk of people misinterpreting what he has to say, particularly when headlines are triggered that are then read by um, AI machines and by other trading systems, which will immediately react to certain words in headlines. So if he sends out something that has the word pause in it, you can probably expect mm-hmm. there'll be an extreme reaction in markets, which he doesn't want to see. He wants people to see the full message, not just one or two words. He wants them to understand. If the Fed have had the full discussion on a pause, he wants you to know exactly what that discussion was. That's such an interesting point. Finally, anything surprising to you out of the ECB or BOE? I think if it was a surprise, it was that the ECB was able to be so clear on, on what they so they've more or less told you that for the next meeting they're very confident they're going to raise rates 50 basis points again which is unusual to project that far into the future and they've given markets certainly a reasonable hint that that, that could be the last one in the series the bank of england also seems to have given fairly good guidance that they're very close to finishing they possibly have finished with rate hikes as well that's a lot more than central banks have been telling us for, for some time so the 
why you're seeing a strong reaction. For example, if you look in the foreign exchange market, the euro is very strong against the pound because people are now assuming that the, the rate differential between euro yields and sterling yields could narrow quite significantly over the, the next few months. Um, and that's probably not something that people expected before this week. MLive macro strategist Mark Cranfield there, out of Singapore. Stay tuned, Shuli Ren joins next on the incredible story of Adani Group fighting the short seller. This is Bloomberg Opinion. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. Now to the incredible story of Hindenburg Research versus the Indian industrialist tycoon Gautam Adani's Adani Group. Over the course of a handful of trading sessions, Hindenburg's allegations that Adani Group is pulling off the largest con in corporate history percolated through markets and caused Adani Group shares and bonds to take a severe tumble. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren has followed Asia nation builders for some time, as well as the dollar bond traders they tend to to attract. She joined for some perspective. So, Shuli, this is an insane story and it's picked up steam. First of all, tell us how much does Adani Enterprises depend on outside investors? Quite a bit, surprisingly. So Adani has been very good at having on to global investors for their industrial adventure. For instance, they're doing a lot of green energy stuff, like green hydrogen, so on and so forth. So over the years, about 30% of Adani's financing is denominated in foreign currencies. They have borrowed extensively on the dollar bond market. They have also sought funding from foreign banks in their overseas expansion. So quite a bit. At first glance, it didn't seem like this was going to hurt Adani too much, this Hindenburg research report. Perhaps the Adani Enterprises Group was too big for something like this to actually have an impact. Now it seems like it might actually succeed. Adani had to pull a share sale, for example. Explain to us what you see going on. Uh, to be honest, I was very surprised because I have been covering, you know, Chinese conglomerates for a decade as a journalist. And then what we've seen with China's H&A Group, Anbang and China Evergrande Group, yeah, like all these companies, they had received the short sellers reports for years, right? They didn't tumble. They only tumbled when the political wind in Beijing changed, you know, like when China decided to crack down on private enterprises that did a lot of overseas deals. H&A fell in 2021 when China was doing the real estate developer crackdown, China Evergrande Group fell. So I was, to be honest, very surprised. And I will have to say that it says something about the Indian market as a capital market. I mean, China is very opaque. Foreign investors basically play the Beijing's game, right? They basically play along with Beijing's political agenda, where it seems they have more sway when it comes to Indian companies. So I was quite surprised. And also, Adani had quite a bit of overseas funding. I'm talking about 30%. 
Now, how similar is the Adani story to the likes of China Evergrande, other companies like that? It's not really a public company, but we're seeing a different public market reaction. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because in many ways they're very similar, right? They're very heavily leveraged. These are conglomerates using perhaps one cash cow subsidiary to fund new business ventures of other business arms. So if one tumbles, the others will fall as well. They are also very much family-run, right? Like 70% of the shares are held by company insiders, brothers, sisters, everyone Mm. is in it. So in many ways, they're very similar. But I think Adani is a bit more international than the Chinese ones in that, you know, like they have received funding from everyone. And also Adani, believe it or not, before the Hindenburg report, is still investment grade. Their dollar bonds are all rated as investment grades, whereas the Chinese ones, they were always high yield. So whenever there is a little bit of a jittery, I imagine, investment grade funds, they will panic a little bit more, right? High yield traders, they always knew what they were going to. Whereas if you have very blue chip asset managers that were only buy into bonds that have very little risk, if they see this kind of headlines, they will start to sell. We'll see how long that lasts because bonds of the flagship Adani Enterprises have plunged now to distressed levels. Four different port bonds hit distressed levels this week. Green energy bonds also declined. They didn't reach distressed level, but they're not far off it. So we'll see how long those ratings last. How much is Gautam Adani himself concerned right now? Is there something that the Indian administration can do? Will he be calling Prime Minister Modi, for example? They are very well known to be politically close, although Adani has said that that he has not received any favors from from the Modi government. I mean, he has to be very, very worried because his whole business endeavor depends on funding. He's trying to grow his business on many fronts, right? Ports, airports, green hydrogen, all of them need money. So once that funding channel stops, he's in big trouble. So I think he has to be very worried right now. And going back to the bond issue, if you look at all these Adani dollar bonds, from port to green energy to the Mumbai subsidiary, they're all investment grade. So if one of the rating agencies downgrade into high yield, Adani will be a fallen angel. And we're no longer talking about 3 to 5% funding costs. We're talking about 8 to 10%. So he has to be very, very worried right now. Surely, why are investors pulling out? It's likely that there are some extraordinarily valid statements in the Hindenburg Research Report. At the same time, we all know how some of these companies operate in markets like India's. Were investors concerned that this would pick up steam? What would make them sell? I think there are two kinds of investors we're talking about. For instance, overnight we saw the news clip about Norwegian sovereign funds. They actually were always underway Adani because they just didn't feel very good about it. I mean, a lot of Adani's foreign investors, they are ESG funds because he is doing the green energy thing, right? That's why they bought in. But ESG funds are very worried when there are this kind of global headlines accusing Adani of dismal corporate governance because ESG is not just environmental it's also governance. So they can be very worried. And another thing is going back to investment grade bond funds. As soon as Adani's bonds are downgraded into high yield, they have to sell because it's their funds mandate. 
Right, so there's probably some concern that that's going to happen soon and they want out before that happens. Now, a share offering was also pulled. It was a $2.5 billion share offering that Adani says was fully subscribed. It was a fascinating week because Jefferies was part of the underwriting syndicate, so there was some speculation that if Jefferies did its due diligence, particularly after this report, that Jefferies would have to pull out. Before any of that may or may not have happened, Adani pulled the share sale why pull the share sale if it was fully subscribed, thanks to some Indian and Gulf investors, according to Adani? So I did some reporting on my end, and here's what I heard. Like, there are two theories, right? One, that's the, the more damaging one is that Adani doesn't even have $1 billion to buy up the shares himself. Oof. I mean, the whole share sale is only $2.5 billion. $1.5 billion was already subscribed by investors from the Middle East, etc., right? So he just needs another billion. So that's the more damaging theory. But what I heard on the street is that, you know, like the share sale was at over 3,000 rupees per share. And then the actual market price is at 2000 <laughs> It's one-third below, below what Adani is asking investors to buy in at. So they probably just didn't want to, you know, cause trouble down the road. They don't want to have disgruntled investors saying, why am I buying these shares at 3000 rupees a piece when in the marketplace I can buy for 2000 So that's why they pulled. Wow. Now, India is a massive country. Obviously, a lot of this infrastructure is needed and will get built at some point. Is there a better way? I mean, somebody like Adani comes along and decides he's going to do it all. Isn't there political support for that? Because at the end of the day, it helps GDP growth. It needs to get done anyway. Somebody needs to take the reins. Why would a short seller's report, even if the shares are overvalued, even if there's all sorts of opaque subsidiaries and so on, why would that really matter in India? Well, I think it was a part of India's growth story. After seeing what happened to China, you know, global investors just lost a little bit of faith in Beijing. And they were actually fleeing to India, which also has 1.4 billion population, but its population is younger and it's future prospects are brighter, right? And then I think the right question to ask is, is there a better way to buy into India's growth stories other than Adani? Yeah, is there? um, I think, uh, unfortunately, there's not. Yes. Not for now, right? So Uh, what do investors do or what does India do, more importantly? I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, the problem with India is that the growth potential is all there, but the valuation is just very expensive. Adani, of course, is an extreme case. But if you look everywhere, you know, the Indian banks are way more expensive than the Chinese ones. And you can say, well, how about their bad loan exposure? What if the likes of Adani blows up? They will be also saddled with that. Why are they trading at three or four times book value when the Chinese ones are trading at 0.5? Yes. (laughs) Right. So I think the India problem is its valuation. And in a way, if you're buying to India, you're kind of buying to an option, a core option, which fundamentally is just very volatile. Shuli, is it possible that this all backfires eventually on the Modi administration or is it shielded from anything that happens with a large conglomerate? I think at this point, he is shielded, right? He just needs to stay on the sidelines and see how it's going to unfold. I mean, of course, the opposition party will point to his relationship with Adani, but so far he's showed it. And if you look at his budget, he's trying to cater to India's rising middle class. We're talking about over 400 million people here. I think politically he is quite well established. Will he drop Adani if necessary? 
That's a very good question. I mean, based on experience in China, I mean, the Chinese government doesn't care what、mm. global investors have to say, right? Like going by the China experience, he wouldn't care. But India could be different. I mean, Americans are still India's biggest customers, right? The Modi made in India dream has to be funded by a lot of U.S. dollars. So maybe he might. One of the Bloomberg Opinion editorials pointed out this week that if Adani hadn't existed, India would have to invent him. Who or what would replace Adani if somehow this ends up bringing him down or bringing part of his enterprise down? So it will be another entrepreneur who's willing to fast track India's industrial growth, like Adani. It's not Adani per se, but it has to be a private entrepreneur. India works quite differently from China. I mean, China's infrastructure spending, a lot of it is public money, right? But India still relies a lot on the private sector. So somebody else who is ambitious, fast charging, will come and do what Adani cannot finish. Could Adani get help from the markets? So, if there was a re-rating or a revaluation of his enterprises, would that help him eventually? I think there is just a lot of interest in Adani's bonds and stocks right now, especially the dollar bonds. Based on what I heard from, you know, dollar bond traders, a lot of them were looking like. In fact, you can see the flow from brokerages. They were saying that so-called real money funds have been selling. Basically, those long-only investment-grade asset managers they've been selling for a couple of days because they were very worried, right? Skittish. But credit hedge funds have been buying. They just think it's a really good deal. You know, if Adani is trading at say 60 cents on a dollar, maybe they just don't see that it will fail completely. So this is a very interesting jostle. On the one hand, there are blue chip funds that are worried about ESG. On the other hand, there are more risk-seeking hedge funds looking to make some quick returns. And that's why you see that bond market is very, very volatile. It can trade up and down 20 points daily. That's fascinating, and surely did anything jump out at you from the Hindenburg Research report that it would be very easy to prove, or that seems correct? I think to me the accusation about stock manipulation is correct because they were saying basically according to the Indian security law, if you have insiders holding more than seventy-five percent of a company's stock. That stock has to be delisted because there's too little public flow, and it's too easy for stock manipulation. So what Hindenburg said is that Adani insiders use opaque overseas financing vehicles to buy into Adani shares. 100% of these funds buy into Adani shares, which seems to me pretty unlikely. You wouldn't put 100% of your money into this one stock, right? So to me, that's quite believable. Surely, have we ever seen something like this before, where a short seller, you know, Hindenburg Research in this case, a pretty small shop, takes on basically、oh, an entire nation's growth story? No, I haven't. Hindenburg is quite an amazing company. I mean, it is only five years old, and its founder is not even forty years old, and it is quite amazing. Bloomberg Opinions, Shuli Ren. As always, we love to hear from you. Do send us an email at vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo and Sarah Livesey. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.